2: I'm Alison Balance, and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ. Last week on the show, we talked about the sunken continent, Zealandia. Well, over the next decades and centuries, even more of it will be underwater as sea levels rise. The growing rate of sea level rise is due to increasing global carbon emissions and a warming climate, And a new report from NIWA says that just a little bit of sea level rise can have big effects on the frequency of coastal flooding. To find out more, I talk with two of the report's authors, Scott Stevens and Rob Bell. First up, I ask Scott to explain what contributes to changes in sea level at the coast.
0: There's several things that cause the sea level to change The thing that controls most of our change on a day-to-day basis in New Zealand is the tide. So that causes changes in sea level of up to four metres in places down around Nelson and smaller changes around Wellington, for example, of sort of one to one and a half metres. So we have the tide and then on top of that we have storms. So what happens is when we get stormy weather systems, with strong winds, the winds push the water up against the land surface and they actually cause what we call a storm surge. And so the worst situation for us is that when we get a very high tide and we get a storm surge at the same time. It's probably worth mentioning that not all tides are equal. So tides are caused by the gravitational pull of the sun, in the Earth's moon and when those two things line up and pull together we get much bigger tides than than when they're pulling at right angles to each other and so that happens on the new moon and on the full moon it's called our spring-neep cycle but there's also one other thing that influences that and that is that the moon travels around the Earth in an elliptical path and so it gets closer to the Earth in its path and further away. And that cycle takes about 29 days or so. And when that lines up with the the spring neap effect, when the Sun and Moon are pulling together, that's when we get our biggest tides. And so every seven months or so that peaks and we get what we call a king tide. And that's where our harbours are really full and if we get a storm at that time, it doesn't take much of a storm ...for the water to start washing up and across the land surface.
2: So Niwa already has a king tide alert in place, doesn't it, to tell people, Oi, uh, one of these things is coming up?
0: Yeah, that's correct. Because we can predict the tides, we we know uh, what the sun and the moon are doing in relation to the earth. We can actually predict when these very high tides are likely to occur. And we created our red alert tide calendar. And that's actually very popular. We get a lot of requests... If we're a little bit late producing it, we get quite a lot of requests from emergency managers and councils and civil defence around the country. Because these guys know that if they get a storm on on a red alert tide date, then there's likely to be trouble in our coastal towns, uh, for our coastal roads, etc.
2: I think Nelson is one of those places that gets quite strongly affected by those king tides. Bits of Nelson that don't even appear to be right by the sea suddenly have water coming back up the drains, I think.
0: Yeah, you're quite right. So in Nelson and Wakatu Square, they get sunny day flooding. Another term is called nuisance flooding. And that's um, this regular flooding that occurs in any weather, even fine weather, and the water there travels back up the stormwater drains and starts to flood the car parks. And in actual fact, that sort of nuisance type flooding is what we're going to see a lot more of in the future due to sea level rise. And because that's the other key factor here is that along with the tides and the storms we've also got a changing mean sea level base which is rising. And so the tides and the storm surges are going to run up on top of that base and increasingly they're going to cause more frequent flooding and they're going to reach higher and higher and travel further inland. So that's not actually just a thing for the future. That's actually something we can observe and it's happening and it's happened. Um, So for example in New Zealand we've had an average of about 20 centimetres of sea level rise over the last century and that is is actually making a difference. We can see that in the number of sea levels that are reaching places like Wakatū Square in Nelson, and that's becoming increasingly flooded. Shoal Bay in Auckland is another one where the uh, water used to only flow across the culvert in the, in the very highest sea levels. Now it flows across there quite rapidly and is starting to encroach onto the cricket fields and kill the grass there. Those are the actual observable impacts of sea level rise that we have had in the past and which is continuing. And will accelerate in the future.
2: Now tell me about the annual sea level cycle.
0: Yeah sure so another factor is that on an annual basis the sea level is slightly higher or slightly lower depending on which time of year we are at and that's because of the heating and cooling of the ocean. So in summer the weather gets hot and that warms up the oceans and people enjoy that because they like to go swimming. But that also causes the sea level to be slightly higher about five to ten centimetres higher and then there is a bit of a lag because you know we get our hottest temperatures in January but the sea level peaks in about May in most places around New Zealand. The reverse to that is that sea levels are actually lower in the late spring. It's not a big fluctuation it's only about 10 centimetres or so and yet what's really surprising is that that has quite a strong control on when we observe our highest sea levels. Um, And that was a surprising finding of our work because uh, we know the tides and storm surges are the key things which cause flooding. So we were really surprised to see that this little small fluctuation made quite a difference in the number of events we were seeing where sea levels exceeded a high threshold.
2: So this is about a number of things just coinciding. Uh, So nothing on its own is terrible, but if you stack them up on top of each other, the consequences suddenly become much more significant.
0: Yes, that's absolutely right. And that's what it's about at the moment. It's about we need these combinations of things to occur in order to get flooding events. And that was one of the motivations of our study, was to set out to find out, well, what are these factors? And can we understand how they combine, and can we see patterns in the way these things are happening? Like, do they hit the same part of the country at the same time, or, or do they occur close together, or is it certain times of the year where we're more vulnerable?
2: So for the study, you went back and looked at historic records. Tell me how far back you went and how how many events you found that you could you could look at and analyse.
0: We have sea level records um, around New Zealand that go back to around about the year 1900. We've got a couple of records from Auckland and Dunedin that go back that far at the ports. Uh, And then we've got a couple of other long records, uh, Littleton and Wellington, um, again in the ports, and a few others. Uh, We looked at 30 sea level records with an average length of of around about 20 years, so the modern ones are, are quite small. So there's a few gaps in the record but we could understand from that we can we can get a pretty good understanding of, of what's causing our highest sea levels. So what we did is we, we took out the long term sea level trend which is about 20 centimeters over the last century. So we took that trend away from our sea level records and then we looked at the highest sea level events and what made those up. So we looked for a sea level that would only be exceeded once on average about every five years that was our threshold and then we looked at the makeup of those events.
2: And what did you find were the major contributors were that was it the same contributors every time or was it always a case that you had a number of things piling up on each other?
0: Generally always a number of things piling up on each other almost always a very high tide with a moderate storm surge on the odd occasion a a slightly smaller but still high tide with a larger surge as well were the key things. But in terms of the timing you know when these things occur during the year the surprising finding was that the small annual sea level cycle made quite a big difference and so we tended to see a lot more of these extreme sea level events occurring between January and May-ish and a lot fewer later in, this, in the spring even though we get some quite stormy weather at that time.
2: Gosh, that's interesting isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah really surprising we were, we were quite surprised but I guess the key conclusion from that is that these small changes in the background sea level make quite a big difference to the frequency of flooding events so what it indicates is that there's really high sensitivity to that small amount of fluctuation and so that's quite a red flag for sea level rise because We expect to see sea level rise of around 10 to 30 centimetres uh, between now and 2050. So that's only the lifetime of an average mortgage from now, house mortgage. So we expect to see rise of around 10 to 30 centimetres over that time. And that's going to make quite a big difference to the frequency of flooding events that we see around New Zealand in places like Wakatu Square in Nelson and Shoal Bay in Auckland, for example. So I guess one of the key messages arising out of that is that flooding from the sea is increasing in frequency already and we can observe that, that increase in frequency and that it's going to increase rapidly as the sea level rise accelerates and that it's actually not necessarily an end of the century thing. It's something that's coming and and we'll start to see noticeable impacts over the lifetime of an average mortgage from now.
2: Does the weather have anything to do with it, whether it's a high-pressure system or a low-pressure system, does that exacerbate high tides?
0: So the weather doesn't affect the tides, but what the weather does affect, of course, is is the storm surges. So, yeah, the weather's a really important component of our highest sea level events. And we we did find some patterns in in the types of weather events that that produced large storm surges. On the northeast of the coast of the North Island, blocking high pressure systems were a key weather pattern. So what we have there is we have this big high pressure system that's just moved off to the east of New Zealand and it's sitting there, not going anywhere. And then we get a low pressure system that's that's spinning down from the north of New Zealand and it comes up against this high pressure and it can't move across and so it intensifies and deepens. And so we get these really intense cyclone systems and they push the water onshore and drive the sea level up. They also have um, quite low uh, barometric pressure and that allows sea level to rise too. So there's two factors there with the storms, the low barometric pressure and the strong winds. The other key weather type that caused large storm surges were uh, trough weather systems. And these tend to be low pressure troughs south of New Zealand and during those we, we get strong westerly or northwesterly winds that blow across New Zealand and they cause high storm surges to occur the west coast of the North Island and the, and throughout the South Island.
2: What about an event like the one a couple of weeks ago here in Wellington where it was actually a blue sky sunny day here but these massive waves turned up? Was that, was that just a consequence of there was a high high tide and there happened to be strong winds that was piling the water up and creating big waves.
0: So the event that happened in Wellington, there were high tides on on that day, and also big waves. So waves isn't something that I've mentioned up up until now, um, because this particular study that we did was looking at the kind of sea level uh, processes, not the waves as such, but the key factors there were large waves and a high, high tide riding on the back of increasing uh, mean sea level which has occurred over the last few decades and is, is making that coast increasingly vulnerable.
2: Yeah, so waves are just another complexity on top of the sea level problem.
0: They are, but they don't do a lot of damage generally if they happen to peak on a low tide and it's definitely worse if they strike on a higher-than-normal high tide, and there's some good examples of of that. In 2018, the summer of storms, we got several uh, extropical cyclone causing storm surge and waves, which which happened to coincide with spring tides and even king tides then, and uh, so Nelson got beaten up pretty badly, uh, an extropical cyclone whihe, and that was um, waves able to ride in on the back of very high tides and cause a lot of erosion and wave impact damage around Nelson.
2: In your paper, you talk about the timing of events, and and it's the return time, really. So because spring tide is such an important feature in this, you're not going to get extreme sea level rise events back to back. You know, they will be a few days apart. Can you explain that to me?
0: Basically, in the spring neap tidal cycle means that we get higher high tides every fortnight and then you know, the neap tides are low in between. So the difference between one week and the next is a lot. And so even if we get two large storms a week apart, uh, the one that occurs on the spring tide is, is potentially going to cause quite a lot of uh, flooding and Im- impact damage. But the one that occurs a week later on the neap tide just doesn't it just doesn't reach very high and that's what our analysis showed and and so that's kind of interesting for emergency managers because they know that they've got a bit of clean-up time uh, in between if they were to get a big event then it's very unlikely that they get hammered again until another fortnight approximately or 10 days
2: there's certainly a lot of food for thought in this for local councils and people living in vulnerable coastal areas
0: there is, yeah, there is a lot of food for thought about it and I guess you know there's been a few studies like this that we've done and others and the message is certainly getting out there and, and a lot of people are beginning to think, well, what can we do about it in the future? And it's certainly an issue that councils are aware of.
2: You've touched on it already, but the, the concerning thing is that we already know from past events that you get these extreme sea-level events. And as you said, it's only going to get worse because of the forecast sea-level rise that we're going to get, not within the next century, but within the next decades.
0: Yes, that's that's right, Alison. And it's true that um, sea-level will continue to accelerate over centuries, though, so it's not going to stop, because we've already burned enough carbon into the atmosphere that sea-level will keep rising for the next few centuries. But I guess the key point is that we're not going to have to wait centuries to feel the impacts. We're already feeling them. We're already observing the impacts. And uh, we expect to see quite large increases in the frequency of flooding over the next 20 to 30 years because of rising sea levels, which are starting to
2: accelerate. I'm Alison Balance, and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ National. And now, part two of our feature on sea level rise and coastal flooding, adaptation.
1: Kia ora, I'm Rob Bell. I'm the programme leader for climate change impacts and adaptation at NIWA. So my background is a coastal engineer, and so I work across NIWA research programmes and also externally with stakeholders about the whole big systems-wide issues around adaptation to climate change, particularly focused on the coast.
2: So you've spent quite a bit of time going around New Zealand talking to people about what might happen in terms of climate change and what the impacts of that might be in different places. So it's really about it being the interface between the science and the practical issues of how do we deal with this.
1: That's the role I've I've really settled into. I like joining dots between various elements of how we uh, look at climate change, try and understand the impacts and, of course, the uncertainties in that, and how we can embrace that uncertainty and move forward to develop frameworks for solutions for councils to work through and communities.
2: So there are a number of processes at play here extreme sea level rise, long-term change, you've got tides, you've got waves, you've got storm surge. Can you describe to me what happens around New Zealand and maybe in a couple of different places? Because I imagine that different places around New Zealand have different susceptibilities to what's going on in relation to this bigger picture of climate change on the coast.
1: Yeah, so around New Zealand, particularly in our low-lying areas, because I think it's coastal flooding is the the really big emerging risk compared with coastal erosion which gets a lot of press but is still going to be localized and different geographic situations around New Zealand are presenting different elements of these coastal hazards so some it's just purely coastal flooding and wave overtopping a bit like what we saw recently in the 15th of April in the South Wellington coast, where it was wave overtopping. Other areas like the Hauraki Plains, South Dunedin, where the higher base sea level is causing a rise in the groundwater, and so we're seeing these compound hazards, or like a flood sandwich between storm surges at the seaward end, and more intense rainfall, river floods, and rising groundwater at the other end. So we're seeing this emerging issue with events where we've got these compound houses combining and causing flooding issues.
2: Scott and I talked about that a bit, that idea that you just get things that are on their own might not be enough to be a problem, but when they stack up on top of each other at the same time, you can end up with a quite significant event.
1: That's certainly some of the work that we're working on to provide guidance to councils. But it is a merging area, and it's quite difficult to really get, get inside that because you could be overly cautious and then just use what we call a building block approach and say the worst case for flooding and the worst case for groundwater, worst case for a river flood. And if you stack all those blocks up, you you get a very, almost an impossible combination. So we're trying to provide guidance that gives councils a bit more of a realistic look at how these things combine, because otherwise we're going to end up with very over-designed seawalls, rock walls, or whatever response councils are looking at, and we'll end up gold-plating these at very high expense.
2: How do you find councils responding when you go and talk to them about this emerging information that you're getting by analysing past records, for example, that the models are showing might happen in the future. How are councils responding? And have you seen that response change in the time that you've been working in this area? Are they more open to going, gosh, this is something that is real, this is something that we should be dealing with than they they perhaps used to be?
1: Yes, councils are, are certainly much more aware of it, particularly those that are being exposed now, they may have had rare events in the past. And so what we found really useful is to pick a more recent event in living memory and then use that as an example. And for instance, when I talked to Auckland councilors a few years ago, I used the example of the 23rd of January 2011 when quite a bit of coastal flooding occurred in Auckland. So that was quite, to the forefront in their memory. And we use that to project through to the future and saying, for instance, in Auckland with another 40 centimetres of sea level rise, that very rare event, which was near a 100 year event in 2011, that will become something that occurs every year. So it immediately provides some, some ground truthing for a real event about what it might look like towards the middle of this century. And so we find that a very useful way to talk about, not get tied down as a 100-year, 150-year, but talk more about how many of these floods are going to become towards the mid-century and how frequent they will become.
2: Can you quickly remind me how much sea level rise we've dealt with, let's just talk about centuries, in the last century that we've seen in New Zealand, and what's forecast to happen in the next 100 years?
1: We've just um, finished another analysis to update it for sea level rise. So we've had about just, just over 20 centimetres of sea level rise in the last 100 years. So that's raised the base sea level that all these storms are riding on the back of. So that's why we're seeing these more frequent storms. But in the next 30 years, it's pretty certain we're going to get somewhere between 25 and 35 centimetres in the next 30 years. So 100 years, we had 20 centimetres. Next 30 years, we're going to see 25 to 35. And then beyond that, we're going to see this widening uncertainty. We're going to have in 100 years' time somewhere between half a metre and 1.9 metres or towards 2 metres And that really depends on how global emissions pan out, and in particular, how the polar ice sheets will respond to that warming.
2: There's the big picture issue of how we should be responding to carbon emissions and uh, trying to minimise those, but at the same time then each individual council is trying to deal with what is likely to happen in its area, which might be very specific to that area.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right, because mitigation of emissions is a global issue and we've all got to do our small part to integrate it up globally, but adaptation is very much a local issue. So some areas will have very few impacts, but our low-lying coastal areas are, are probably going to see one of the biggest impacts from sea level rise and also this flood sandwich. So they're the ones that need to start working fairly quickly towards some kind of adaptive plan to give themselves options. And they need to consider the shelf life of those options. For instance, seawalls and rock revetments may tend to have fairly short shelf lives. They may only be sustainable in the next 20 or 30 years. So some of those communities will have to look at something like managed retreat. And indeed, some of the communities we've been working with, such as in Hawke's Bay, have already seen the need that in 50-plus years they may need to retreat back from the coast in these low-lying areas.
2: That idea of managed retreat from the coast has certainly had its um, problems when councils, and I'm thinking Kapiti Coast a few years ago, try to start suggesting where the greatest risk is and how we need to move back. But people don't like hearing that.
1: Now, the word managed retreat, it is quite a loaded word. Sometimes people call it managed relocation. And I guess it needs to work with communities to take them on a journey. And that's indeed what we did, working with the councils as a critical friend in their process. So it was the community groups working together, developing different pathways for different timeframes into the future including managed retreat, and seawalls were part of that mix as well in the short term. But it was really interesting to see, well, some of the community members want to keep managed retreat off the table, but it was well facilitated that all options should remain on the table and work with those. And there were quite a number of light bulb moments because I think managed retreat can sometimes seem like You know, someone's going to knock on your door and tell you you have to leave in the next month or two. But this is a long-term process, and so it could take decades in order for such a scheme to be put in place and allowing a community to work with and imagine or reimagine their future. So there are some positives in that, and it's taking them on a journey rather than something that's going to happen, you know, next year or so on.
2: And you've touched on it already, but there are different timeframes in this. So local communities do need to be planning for what can we do within the next decade as opposed to what are we doing in the next 50 years. So you need to deal with the here and now as well as plan for this continuing change over the, the coming decades.
1: Yes, yeah, so that's what we embedded down in the new uh, central government guidance for councils to work within the coast. And it's called adaptive pathways planning. It's dynamic in the sense that the councils working together with community groups and stakeholders in iwi and HAPU can sit down and say, well, in the short term, maybe we need to buy time and we can have this kind of option. But we need to work to analyse that and say, well, that's a short shelf life for that option, maybe a seawall. So what are some of the other pathways that get us through to the next 100 years? So there'll be a mix of those pathways It's a bit like tracks in a forest. You've got multiple dividing tracks and some of them will rejoin the main track again if you go down that route, uh, for instance, a seawall, and you may have to come back to a more long-lasting option. So it's guidance to provide a way of looking at different options into the future. But the key is not to lock ourselves in and our communities to a particular option For instance, a seawall, if you decide that's what we're going to have for the next 100, 200 years, it could become very expensive. You lose your beach. There's no public access in the long run. So we don't want to lock ourselves into a particular option. So this provides a bit of flexibility and guidance for allowing councils to plan right through to 100 years plus.
2: So how much of New Zealand is really at risk from rising sea levels and are there particular hotspots that you're worried about?
1: Yeah, we we completed a study at the end of last year. And and so I I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's it's quite a, a large number of buildings, houses, roads, railways, and in particular people that are exposed, particularly in the long run. So there is time to plan ahead. But we need some of those very low-lying communities where they're already seeing there's emerging flooding risks or coastal erosion occurring, need to start planning now. Um, And indeed, some of those communities have been actively planning like um, Makara in Wellington, Hawke's Bay, and Thames Coromandel Council are also starting to work with their communities around coastal compartment plans for each of the bays around the coromandel so work is being done and is underway to address particularly those low-lying areas
2: thanks rob rob bell is from niwa as is scott stevens i'm alison balance in this hour changing world podcast from rnz first aired on the 14th of may 2020. you can listen again and read the web feature at our webpage rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. The feature contains links to reports mentioned in the interviews, as well as other related research from the Deep South National Science Challenge and the Resilience to Nature's Challenges National Science Challenge. Why not sign up for our free weekly email newsletter? The link is at the bottom of the web page. On the way down the page, you'll notice that the show has a very large library of past episodes which will keep you entertained for days, if that's something you'd like. That website again, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. RNZ Our Changing World is also on your favourite podcast app. If you'd like to get in touch or follow along, we're on Facebook and Twitter at RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Stay safe and catch you next time. Mā wā.